This episode is brought to you by Estellas Oncology. Estellas Oncology is changing the course of cancer treatment. With a world-class team of medical, clinical, and scientific experts, Estellas Oncology is driving innovation and collaboration to redefine what's possible for those impacted by hard-to-treat cancers. Learn more at estellasoncology.com. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Issues related to the prostate can play a significant role in a man's sexual function. We commonly use medications for benign prostate problems such as BPH, which can produce adverse effects related to a man's sexuality. It's also very common for the treatment of prostate cancer, including radiation therapy, surgical prostatectomy, or hormonal therapy to cause sexual dysfunction. In today's podcast, we'll review the important role the prostate plays in sexual function as we discuss the prostate and sexual health with our guest, Dr. Nahid Punjani, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Nahid, thank you for joining me today. I know we're supposed to be talking mostly on sexual function and prostate cancer, but let's start by talking about more benign condition, BPH, because our treatment for that does affect sexual function as well. First of all, what role does the healthy prostate play in our sexual function? First of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and speak about this really important topic today. So in regards to what role does the, the prostate really play in sexuality, you know, the prostate is itself is an organ which lies between the bladder and the urethra. And while it plays an important role in urinary control, I mean, it, it has important impacts on sexuality. And this is because certain medications that we give to men often to help relax the prostate, which is used for urinary difficulties, ends up resulting in an open bladder neck. While these do improve the way that they avoid, this can have impacts in terms of ejaculation, such that that open bladder neck and a concept that fluid goes to the path of least resistance may result in during ejaculation, some of that fluid going backwards into the bladder. This may happen in any type of surgery, which actually disrupts the prostate. This really can be very distressing for men and should definitely be discussed during preoperative counseling. However, another important aspect of the prostate and sexual function is that the nerves responsible for erections are actually found on the outer surface of the prostate. So treatments such as prostate surgery or radiation can damage these nerves and really ultimately result in negative effects to sexual function as related to the prostate. And then finally, the prostate actually does produce about a quarter of the fluid responsible for a man's ejaculate. And so when this prostate is affected, it can be important to understand that this may have impacts on some of the fluid and some of the specific enzymes that the prostate creates, which is important for the ejaculate. Okay. Well, let's talk about management of BPH and its sexual function the two probably most common treatments that we would use for BPH are the alpha antagonists. What does that tend to do to uh, sexual function? For sure. So this is sort of a medication I was alluding to a bit earlier, which ends up relaxing the bladder neck and can result in retrograde ejaculation. You know, in a normal orgasm ejaculation, the bladder neck remains closed and there is rhythmic contraction of the muscles, the ischio and bubble cavernosus muscles. And this causes expulsion of fluid or ejaculate during orgasm. But if the bladder neck is relaxed, as I alluded to, the ejaculate may go backwards rather than forwards. 
However, there's also evidence that these medications can also impact ejaculation, not just in a retrograde fashion, but to some degree also result in an ejaculation. An ejaculation is actually the failure of the seminal fluid to deposit the fluid into the urethra. And again, these effects can be very distressing for men who choose to use this medication and therefore should be counseled prior to its use. Okay. And the other class of medications we use are the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, and they have their own set of issues. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, so these medications work by blocking the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. This is important because dihydrotestosterone helps feed and grow the prostate. By blocking the effect of this, essentially shrinks the prostate in size. This can be reflected both by a volume effect, but also a man's PSA, which ends up being a surrogate for prostate volume. However, as a consequence, this may alter a man's sex drive and ultimately result in some degree of erectile dysfunction. Unfortunately, the exact mechanism by which these medications cause erectile dysfunction is not super clear. Some people think it may be related to altered nitric oxide levels or due to an abnormal and neurochemical response during normal sexual function. And really, the actual length and permanence of some of these effects is varied. And again, it's just important to make sure men know this prior to starting this medication, as some of these effects can be quite distressing for them. Okay. Well, let's turn now to prostate cancer. And one of the common treatments that's used when prostate cancer is detected is that of a prostatectomy. Erectile dysfunction seems quite common following that. Does it occur in the vast majority of men who receive a radical prostatectomy? This can be quite variable, and it's hard to give an exact answer because it really depends on a multitude of factors, including surgeon factors, disease factors, and patient factors. And I think one of the most important is those patient factors, and that is their baseline erectile function. So those with poor function baseline or prior to surgery tend to have the most pronounced effects that the best case scenario, they'll only have preservation of their baseline preoperative function. Um, so it's really important that we capture this prior to a man undergoing treatment for their prostate cancer. With respect to surgeon factors, this really depends on you know, the surgical volume of the provider. Those who are fellowship trained and those who perform radical prostatectomy commonly are much more skilled at attempting to spare or minimize manipulation to the nerves, which I discussed earlier actually surround the prostate, which are responsible for our erections. And then disease factors can't be underestimated because a lot of times the decision in terms of what to do with the nerves is made intraoperatively. If a tumor or cancer looks as though it's expanding beyond the prostate or invading the nerves, which, as I said, surround the prostate, a decision may be made to remove a portion of the nerves. This can often be difficult to predict until we are intraoperative. So this is important when we're counseling our patients that some of these decisions are made at the time of the procedure, despite all imaging tools that we have to really provide helpful information. And so for the most part, we can try to predict it, but that can't always be the case. And then for patients, knowing the nerve sparing status of the procedure is important, both for the patient and the clinician to sort of have a sense of what their recovery will be and their long-term erectile function post-procedure. Which nerves actually control erectile function? Yeah, so erectile function is controlled by those nerves that surround the prostate, and notice the cavernosal nerves. These come from the prostatic plexus, which ultimately would come from the uh, inferior hypogastric plexus. And it's important because this is a paired structure, such that there's nerves on both sides. So this means that nerves can be preserved or injured on one side or, or not separately. So hence the term nerve-sparing prostatectomy. And I can imagine that it's uh, challenging to uh, try to identify these nerves and spare them with the uh, removal of the prostate. Once you have erectile dysfunction postoperatively, is that permanent? Does it ever return to function? 
Yeah, great question. Nerve changes are generally slow and nerve regrowth is really slow. We usually give men up to two years to assess recovery in their erectile function. But after one year, we really do have a sense of their recovery. I mean, if the nerves were removed at the time of prostatectomy, then really there's limited ability for these nerves to recover. However, if the nerves are spared, partially transected, or just injured, either from traction or from the heat from the electrocautery, these nerves can, at some point, recover to some degree. Okay. So when erectile dysfunction does occur, what are the management strategies you use to improve this? Yeah, thanks for this question. I think this is really a, a complicated one. You know, penile rehabilitation has really been suggested as a strategy to help preserve erectile function before and after a man having radical prostatectomy. Again, the idea is surrounding the concept of ensuring blood flow to the corpora of the penis to help prevent fibrosis and atrophy of the penile tissue, as some men will also complain of penile shortening as these tissues start to contract. We're actually developing programs here to try to ensure that all men are receiving this education. However, in terms of treatment, ideally men would start oral therapy at a low dose prior to surgery and through their perioperative period. This would then escalate to challenge doses a few weeks after surgery to see if they have responded to the higher doses of medication such as Viagra, Levitra, or Cialis. If still no response to oral medication, men can be transitioned to penile injections, and generally after penile injections fail, a man may require surgery. However, at times along the recovery process, a penile duplex ultrasound may be completed, especially once there's failure of injections. This ultrasound is used to evaluate penile blood flow, which includes arterial blood flow and venous outflow. Normal ultrasound findings support strong arterial blood flow, and trapping of the blood such that there's low venous leak of that blood. If there's high venous outflow, known as venous leak, this may be characterized by clinically stronger erections while standing instead of laying down. And this is ultimately due to decreased blood flow out of the penis during, due to gravity. A diagnosis of venous leak essentially suggests there's no pharmacological management that can be done, and a patient would likely still need to proceed with surgery. However, penile vacuum devices can also be used or trialed, but the data is ultimately mixed. Ultimately, it's a fairly non-invasive option, and anecdotally, some patients do benefit, especially when they use something like a constriction ring. It may be more important in rehabilitation, as it does support the idea, again, of bringing and promoting blood flow to the penis. And then at the last ditch effort and the last sort of option in terms of the spectrum of erectile function treatment is a penile implant. It really can be a great option for those who have no residual erectile function, despite all other treatment options available. There's both inflatable devices and malleable options, which can be considered by patients. And these are important to restoring the quality of life, especially again, as we focus on adequate and appropriate control of the malignancy and thinking about prostate cancer survivorship and quality of life thereafter. Do we have any idea how effective all of these uh, treatment options are in terms of giving their patients a satisfactory erectile function? In general, again, based on what their preoperative erectile function will be, will be, again, helpful to determine what their satisfaction may be postoperatively. Again, I think most men prefer to try to avoid surgical intervention using oral medications or injections. And that's because in a normal erectile state, the penis can expand and grow. And so when men undergo surgery or penile implant, one of the biggest concerns for men is there is a loss of length. And that's because the penis no longer has its normal physiological function to, to grow in the normal way. In general, most men are quite happy and satisfied, regardless of what option we come up with, to try to preserve their erectile function postoperatively, especially once their cancer is well under control. Okay. Well, let's turn from surgery now to radiation therapy. How common is erectile dysfunction following radiation therapy for prostate cancer? 
the rates uh, can vary and depends on, on you know our emerging technology, but also some of the reports that you see. Sometimes the rates can be as great as 50%. And again, depends on some of those same factors we talked about earlier. Pre-procedure baseline erectile function status is very important to how men will do afterwards. And then, you know, there's really, unfortunately, at this point, limited ways to actually shield those nerves which are around the prostate. And therefore, um, you know, many men do result and have erectile dysfunction after radiation. So for those who have radiation therapy and develop erectile dysfunction, do they ever regain function with time without treatment? Men who receive radiation have a different course in terms of their erectile function as compared to those who have surgery. So in men who have surgery, there's removal of the prostate and they tend to have their symptoms exhibited right away. And so these men may over time have regrowth of their nerves and regaining of their erectile function. Radiation is a little bit different in that it results in more of a slow destruction of the tissue and potentially of the nerves. So men who have radiation may initially have reasonable erectile function, but over time their erectile function may worsen. And that's why this is an important distinction between men with radiation and surgery. Similarly, though, however, we would encourage men with radiation to undergo the same type of penile rehabilitation in terms of utilization of medications to preserve penile blood flow to help prevent long-term effects. And when you start treating men who have had radiation therapy, is it immediately after the therapy or do you give them some time and then start treatment? So ideally, you'd want to start it sooner rather than later. And again, that is the idea behind ensuring that there's good and adequate blood flow to the penis because radiation effects are a little bit harder to predict. And so while in some men, some of the effects may happen sooner than later, it's important that we start this process as soon as possible. So any man who's undergoing or contemplating any type of treatment for uh, prostate cancer to start having these discussions and start thinking about effective treatment. Okay. And the management strategies are pretty much the same as surgical with oral pharmacologic therapy, penile injections, vacuum device, and potential penile implant? Correct. Uh, it just may be that uh, the outcomes may be a little bit different, whereas some may only require milder treatment forms and some may require more aggressive treatment options. Do you have a sense as to which men have greater problems long-term surgical versus radiation? It's really hard to compare. I think it's because we're kind of comparing two different techniques and, you know, depending on those sorts of types of factors, the patient factors, the disease factors, and the surgeon factors, I think it becomes really, really difficult to compare the two. We have really good options in terms of, for men, in terms of options for their erectile dysfunction that I think, you know, we're really able to offer men anywhere from mild treatment to, to more aggressive treatment that men end up being quite happy. And I imagine that patients who receive radiation therapy are probably older than those who receive surgery and maybe have a poor baseline erectile function even before treatment starts. Well, let's you're, talk, you're, you're correct. Let's talk now about the effects of hormonal therapy for prostate cancer in terms of erectile dysfunction, reduced libido, and so forth. How common is that? Hormone therapy is sometimes used in prostate cancer for a, a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's used in conjunction with radiation, and sometimes it's used in metastatic disease, and sometimes it's used as a sort of a salvage therapy. And ultimately, it works by bringing the testosterone levels to zero in the idea that you're providing androgen deprivation to these patients. You know, testosterone, as we know, is important for our libido or sex drive. And without testosterone, erections become quite challenging. Men will also see sort of reduction of things such as nocturnal erections. In some men, interestingly, some of these symptoms are less impacted, and this may be thought to be due to secondary uh, differences in the androgen receptor in some of these men. 
and this continues to be explored. But for the most part, the vast, vast majority of men who take hormonal therapy will receive these side effects. And so it's really important that, that men are counseled on this. In some cases, radiation is not given continuously and, and given intermittently. And so in some of these men, uh, once their hormone levels uh, recover and their testosterone levels rise, they may have uh, some reversal of these effects. But again, these can be uh, quite significant to patients. So how do you manage these patients? I imagine the erectile dysfunction is probably a bit easier to manage than uh, reduced libido. I'm not sure how you would treat that. Yeah, so this is challenging because although you can fix the erectile uh, dysfunction, some men just have no interest. And so I think we are a little bit biased in some of these men because that drive is 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 reduced. But similarly, we'd offer the same options, um, you know, including the pharmacological options, injection therapy, and I mean, even the idea of a penile implant. But again, it's just valuing and deliberating this based on the patient's desire and interests at that time. Okay. Well, Nahid, you've given us a lot of information on uh, how the prostate has an effect on our sexual function. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe give two or three key points on prostate disorders and uh, sexual function? Some things that I would uh, reiterate or, or emphasize, are, and I think first is that you know, erectile function is a really common consideration in men with prostate cancer. And this is kind of focused around the idea that we have high rates of cure and, and really effective disease treatment options. A discussion really needs to be made prior to definitive cancer treatment about the impacts and to try to limit the negative effects on quality of life, including the treatment of their sexual and erectile function. I'd say number two, you know, there are numerous options for the treatment of erectile dysfunction in men with prostate cancer who undergo treatment. And discussion of these options is important in providing support to patients with prostate cancer after their treatment. This is a huge opportunity in the prostate cancer survivorship space to really standardize treatments for men so that a focus of quality of life can really be maximized after their treatment. And then finally, all types of treatment of prostate cancer may negatively impact erectile function. And this is, again, important to discuss with these men. How important are erections to a patient's quality of life should be determined prior to their cancer treatment. And if there's concerns for loss of erectile function postoperatively, they should be seen by an appropriate sexual health specialist trying to maximize and optimize their function postoperatively or postprocedurally. We've been discussing the prostate and sexual health with Dr. Nahid Punjani from the Department of Urology at the Mayo Clinic. Nahid, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.